So um, I'll give some attention to the questions that you wrote, and I'm not sure if there'll be answers necessarily, but uh, some reflections or responses. These two questions I thought I'd answer together, even though they don't necessarily appear to have much in relationship to each other. First one is, what is the best way to help defend animals and the ecosystem from human destruction? And the second is, there is a cliche that says, a faint heart never won a lady. We are encouraged to be non-sticky. If you want to win a lady, you might not want to be too sticky. <laughs> We're encouraged to be non-sticky and not to fixate on desire. Does that mean we have to hang out in our practice and trust that an attractive yogi <laughs> or fellow meditator trips over us? Can I repeat? So, the, the saying, a faint heart never won a lady. Right? In other words, be bold in love. Right? That's the message, I guess, of that saying. A faint heart never... In other words, if you know, be bold, be adventurous in love, I guess. But the suggestion is, in the question, we're encouraged to just hang out. How are you ever going to find a partner like this? Right? <laughs> And are we encouraged to just hang out in our practice and trust, trust that some attractive love interest will trip over us in meditation? In other words, you know, just come on. <laughs> so, and remember, the first question was about how do we protect the ecosystem? So... I think there's a misunderstanding that sometimes happens to do with having a faint heart, right, or a bold heart. Some confusion, we might say, between pacifism, right, the love of peace, the recognition of the importance of peace, the orientating one's life towards peace, the recognition of the danger of conflict and hatred and aggression and manipulation and abuse. But... We tend to conflate what we could call pacifism, the love of peace, and passivism, being passive. And that's what the link between the two questions is recognizing the danger of seeing this practice as a passive practice. I would say if you're looking for love, don't sit around waiting for a yogi to trip over you. Right? Go dating. Really? Much more likely to find, you know? I mean, you can come on a meditation retreat. There's lots of lovely spiritual types here, but they're all sitting around with their eyes closed all day, you know? That's no way to meet anybody. We used to, we used to um, for some years, it's still running now, um, 17, 18 years later, but... When we moved to the Mulan after a couple of years, we stopped running it and passed it on to some other people. But we started something called the Dharma Yatra. Yatra means uh, pilgrimage, walking. And we used to walk for a few weeks with the 100, 200, even up to 250 people sometimes, walking through southern France. The first time we walked from our place, we used to have a small center in the Pyrenees to Plum Village, the center of you can see around the Moulin building upstairs, there are some photographs of the Yatra, long lines of people walking. Beautiful. Walking, single file, silent through France. Sometimes our line would be like more than a kilometer long. Because a lot of people. He's walking. Beautiful. But the emphasis was also very much on Sangha connection. So the walking was in silence, and we'd have meditation in the mornings and the evenings, and then I would give teachings, one of the, the co-teachers would give teachings, and we'd have discussions, etc., etc. But outside of that, in camping, we'd have to build up this whole tent village every evening and then uh, take it down and the next morning and move on. We had a kitchen truck, we had a crash truck, we had a whole scene. Some of you came on those yatras, maybe some of you still go. 
was a great place for Dharma dating. Because, yeah, oh, then there's all these kind of yeah, Dharma types and not in silence. So a lot of people got together on those trips. Some are still together. Some got together extremely briefly. <laughs> and, and the problem with camping, with tents, is tents have no soundproofing. <laughs> so the briefness of the liaison was apparent to all sometimes. So, you know, I don't, I don't really want to make this all about dating, even though, hey, it's, I, I get it that that's a thing. But that sense of pacifism, you know, this willingness to kind of listen deeply to life, to be intimate with life, to be present with life, is no contradiction towards, you know, being assertive in life, being bold in life, orientating towards that which seems important. Whatever it is, love, important, relationship, important. One can't make relationship happen, right? But you can, you can do something more than sitting on your ass waiting for the <laughs> perfect partner to come along. And likewise, you know, what's the best way to help uh, defend the ecosystem and animals from human destruction? Well, I don't feel qualified in many ways to answer that, right? Because... That's not my domain. But, you know, there are plenty of people who are qualified. Uh, there's a lot of stuff happening with activism. And I think, you know, activists and contemplatives, both are the two sections of society that share something very important, right? We have a vision of a better way of living, and we're willing to engage that vision. But the contemplative vision is more about inner transformation. And the activist's vision is more about outer transformation. Right? And, I th and contemplatives and activists need each other. So I think, what's the best way? Listen to the activists. Get involved with activists. Some of you are activists and very active activists. And, you know, I think contemplatives need the example and the inspiration and the accompaniment of activists to manifest ourselves in the world for that which we care about. You know, this world, we spent this week talking about the world, natural world, nature, and the degree of erosion of nature, abuse of nature, destruction of nature is, is you know, not just alarming in a sense of caring, but is literally life-threatening literally life-threatening for countless species and for, you know, including ourselves. One football pitch per second of forest disappeared in the entire year of 2017. One football pitch of virgin forest per second. It's a pathological relationship to the natural world. And sitting on our ass ain't going to change that either. The same, so I think you know, contemplatives need activists, and the activists need contemplatives, because there's a huge amount of burnout in activism. There's a huge amount of of kind of unhelpful kind of anger and a kind of destructive anger. There's a lot of splitting and polarization and demonizing of other, you know us and them in activism. And there are some great examples of contemplativeism, contemplativeism. And activism coming together. Some of the anti-fracking stuff that's happening in the UK is very, very inspiring to, uh, to that end. There's some of the, the Buddhist Peace Fellowship and some of the um, kind of, uh, you know, consciously bringing together kind of contemplative skill and activist skill to both kind of simultaneously uh, show up in the world for what people care about and take care of how am I showing up in the world showing up to take care, but what's the mindset? And often we kind of perpetuate the, and, uh, the very things that we, that we want to stand up against, you know, the, kind of, you know, the, the attack and violence towards the, envi the environment. If we're not careful, activism can stand up with a feeling of a lot of attack and, f and uh, demonizing and uh, violence towards the, uh, the, the, those responsible. So, you know, on a meditation retreat, we're actively putting aside 
some of our agency, some of our boldness, some of our willingness to move towards. Right? We're being in a receptive mode. But there's not the suggestion that, you know, the, the, to the extent that we let this receptive mode really underpin our inner life, to that extent it actually gives us the confidence, the fearlessness, the trust to be bold in many ways in our outer life. And certainly, I would say those those the contemplatives that I have the greatest respect for tend to be pretty dynamic in their lives. Some of my own teachers, my own Christopher, wrote a book called *The Green Buddha* in 1980 something. Way you know when when the ecological movement as we n- know it now it was very 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 marginal and he's been ceaselessly involved in environmental action and political action for you know forty years or so monasteries a lot of the monasteries are very involved in activism in Thailand you know there's this thing maybe you've read about where the the of ordaining trees ordaining they put the orange robe on they conduct the ceremony they make the trees into a monk because that's the only way and then the people won't cut the tree down because of the respect for the monastic community it's a creative activism in one of your early talks you mentioned merit and haven't mentioned it again I know that Merit is a key part of Theravada Buddhism, but I've not really grasped the concept. I wonder if you could explain, in your lucid way, no guarantee with that, what achieving merit and making merit means to you, and how this relates to meditation and your understanding. It's true, merit is a key part of Theravada Buddhism. And I don't really, much though my sort of Dharma education was to some extent, to a strong extent within Theravadan Buddhism, and though much of my inspiration is drawn from there, and much of my, uh, I have a great love of that tradition and a long connection with that tradition, it would be disingenuous for me to, I don't feel like I'm a Theravadan Buddhist any generally, and I certainly don't feel like I'd teach Theravadan Buddhism. A real Theravadan Buddhist because Theravadan Buddhism is more than just a series of teachings, right? It's it's got it's a whole bunch of cultural accretions, and so the, the what one finds as Buddhism in Thailand or Sri Lanka or Burma, the main Theravadan countries, if a you know, Thai monk or Sri Lankan nun or you know a proper Theravadan Buddhist was to come here and see, they wouldn't recognize what we're doing as. Theravadan Buddhism. Why aren't your t-shirts in a Dharma hall? Vests in a Dharma hall? What Colored clothes in a Dharma hall? No, you come to a Dharma hall, you cover your shoulders and elbows, you cover your knees, you wear white, men sit one side, women sit another side. You arrive, the teacher makes three bows to the Buddha, everybody else makes three bows to the Buddha, then, you, then we start something. Right? We very sloppy version of that, and come in a bit of a bow this direction, that direction. Some of you bow, some of you don't. That's okay, right? That's okay, but it's not Theravadan Buddhism. And I'm okay with it, you know. I would, like I say, it would be disingenuous. I'm, I'm surprised and sometimes a little distressed even when I see in the Western scene people kind of claiming the lineage of that and uh, purporting to kind of represent in some way the lineage of Theravadan Buddhism, which is, a, you know, which is something with a lot of, you know, which has a whole cultural momentum to it, as well as being a series of teachings. And merit is, is one of those cultural accretions, I would think. So there's that sense of, you know, I would say, to be simple, I've, maybe I said merit the first day, and I haven't said it since, but I've used the word blessings probably quite a lot. And I generally, I think they're pretty much synonymous, but the word blessings is more evocative for me. You know, feeling the, the blessings of my life. May the goodness of my practice be shared with other people. May the, fa- the good fortune I enjoy to be able to be here, you know, may others benefit from that. 
orthodox language, we would call that sharing the merit. Right? Making merit. It gets a little... Um, it gets a little bit like a kind of karmic bank account in in often in the tradition you know or you make merit you get more good things you give some money to the temple and your business will thrive more right once I was in Bodhgaya at the Thai monastery and a wealthy Thai businessman came along and came every year and uh, stayed one night gave $25,000 to the monastery and made a huge offering of blankets and saucepans for the poor people of Bodhgaya. Beautiful. Dana for the monastery, dana for the, the, the local people. Wonderful. And I said to him, it's a beautiful offering, contributing to the monastery, contributing to the, the local people in difficulties. He said, yes. And he said it to me like, it's such a great plan. He says... The more I give, the more I make. <laughs> it's like, so it was, of course, it's generous. It's generous. But there's some kind of weighing it up as a strategy, right? There's a sense of like, I'm onto a really good thing here, right? And there's some sense of like some kind of Buddhist uh, ledger book in the sky, right? And somebody's keeping track of him, thinking, oh, this guy, he's got a, making a lot of merit. He's giving to poor people. Let's boost his business up for him. And so a kind of superstitious relationship to merit. And it's, you know, it's beautiful, the offering, but there's, you know, there's still quite a lot of self-interest in it. And so sometimes anything that gets culturally ossified around a, a collection of teachings, right? People apply it in, in terms of their own capacity, their own understanding, their own obscurations, their own heart. So if you, if you kind of hang out around Buddhist culture and in Buddhist countries, you, know, you see a lot of beautiful gestures of, of dana and support and the sharing of merit and the sharing of blessings and then the offerings in different ways. And, you know, you might also see that more kind of a transactional relationship to merit. Some people don't like the word blessings so much. They ask themselves, well, who's, who's bestowing the blessings? Where are the blessings coming from? What, where I, what, what blessings? Where are the blessings? I can't, can't feel the blessings. Right? For me, I find the word blessings just very evocative. It seems like you know, the more we taste, we've been talking about the support. Right? The way you're feeling the support of life. The, way we, the more we kind of plug into and allow the an intimacy with life and a sense of support of life, the more we feel, we may feel like oh, that, that our life is a blessing. Well, that I can't claim a great deal of responsibility for it. I didn't choose it. Life's blessing me. I wake up in the morning. Oh, my God. Here. How did I wake up? I was gone. <laughs> and then, how did I wake up? Life obviously is continuing to bless me, support me, wake me up. So there's all kinds of ways we might touch into a sense of blessing, a, a sense of receiving the blessings of life, and, the, and a sense then of wishing to share the blessings of one's life, to share one's good fortune, to share one's capacity, to share one's uh, skills, to share one's listening, to share one's support. And that that sense of receiving of blessing in the receiving and in the offering and the kind of the the interpenetration of that, I think, just has a lot of heart, a lot of beauty, a lot of uh, it's kind of it's nourishing for the soul. We might say, even though a Theravadan Buddhist might say you don't have a soul. Benediction. But I think in French, even more than in English, benediction sounds a bit cato, you know? It has a little bit churchy. I mean, it does in English too, but less so, you know? I think it's easier in English to just say, oh, what a blessing, what a blessing. Quelle chance, you know, we might say. But chance is just a bit dry and random. There's not much heart in chance, it's, you know? So, benediction, but... Exactly, exactly. It's a bit that. Anybody else? French, good translation for blessing. Cadeau, bonté, bonté. Exactly. I often say bonté for yeah, yeah. 
What is the range of considered views on whether it is possible to drink alcohol in daily life and have a meaningful practice? What is, so the first part of the question, what is the range of considered views? And the second part, what is your view? Well, there's a lot of views, right? There's, on anything, what the Buddha calls the thicket of views and opinions about anything. Thicket, if your English isn't your first language, is a very nice word. Thicket means like uh, des ronces, brambles. A thicket is a dense patch of brambles. So Buddha, Buddha says... It's the image that's given, views are like a thicket. We took, you get into the thicket of views, right? The more, you're more in the views you are, the more you get kind of scratched and irritated and annoyed by them. So, range of views. Don't drink alcohol. There's one view. The sense that... Um, you know, the, the sense of the encouragement, right, the various precepts or the various don't do's, right, like the Ten Commandments, they're a little differently expressed in, in Buddhist tradition. They're expressed as training guidelines. In other words, not moral imperatives, but ways to train the mind. And they're all really orientated around um, care, respect, uh, non non violence, non-manipulation, right? So, uh, don't kill, be respectful of life. Don't steal, be respectful for, that, uh, for other people's things. Don't, uh, don't uh, what are the others? <laughs> Sexual misconduct, right? Be respectful for people's boundaries. Lying, be respectful for honesty and truthfulness. And uh, not uh, taking intoxicants, being respectful to kind of the clarity of consciousness. So that I, that's one thing, right? The difference between a moral imperative, thou shalt not do this, or thou shalt you know, be condemned to a fiery hell, between, hey, if you want to take care of your mind, protect your mind. If you want to deepen your understanding, you know, protect your understanding. If you want to actually be able to open your heart to a sense of real intimacy with life, then protect your you know, take care of your relationship with life. So I would say, what's my view? I think you have to see for yourself. You know, for some people, it can get into all kinds of difficulty with, with drinking alcohol. All kinds of difficulty. If you get into all kinds of difficulty when you drink alcohol, then don't. Right? Some people don't get into difficulty. Some people get into difficulty through being very uptight about what other people should and shouldn't do. Right. If you get very uptight about what people should and shouldn't do, maybe it would be good for you to have a drink. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think it's a little bit like in... Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's you know there's there's different levels I would say of um, of what oh, yeah m morality in a way there's different levels of moral understanding right and like so we establish the a level a, a kind of moral imperative is works really well for the people who are operating below that level of moral imperative right. And it helps them to, to come, come up to a certain level of moral imperative. That's why we have laws. Right? So if you're confused and you're in a mess and you about any of these things, whether it's you know, lying or drinking or uh, you know, messy relationship life and you're, kind of, you're causing harm for others and you're causing harm for yourself, then having a moral, a kind of moral guideline that you invest some authority in, or the Buddha says, or the law says, or the church says, or whatever it is, if that helps you to kind of, kind of hold yourself to a standard, either through recognition of its goodness, or maybe just through fear, fear of going to hell, right, in the church, or fear of imprisonment, laws of the you know, legal situation, or fear of you know losing merit. Buddhist and 
then that's helpful in some way. But there's, I think also what happens, one can evolve an inner compass of the heart so that one's moral, one's moral understanding is actually better than the do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. And then I think actually one's responsibility really is to let go of the do this, not do this, and to actually find one's way. It's not really about whether one has a drink or what. It's all, what am I cultivating? What am I cultivating? So it depends on all kinds of things. It depends on the social environment. It depends on the culture. We live in a culture where most of us, right, um, where drinking alcohol is very, very completely embedded. It runs through our culture. That can be very difficult for somebody who has a, a, a kind of compulsive or addictive or difficult relationship with alcohol. But we can also find, oh, I've become a Buddhist now and I don't drink alcohol and I go home for Christmas and I start telling my family, no, no, I'm pure. And I, you know that alcohol corrupts one's capacity to keep a clear consciousness. And it's like, oh, no, you have to have extra drinks just to drown you out. There's a, there's a Buddhist story. I think it's probably apocryphal. I think it was just made up, but it's trying to demonstrate that. So a monk, how he would find himself in this position, I don't know, but he finds himself invited for the meal at someone's house. And the, the, the man of the house, it's, it's, well, I've started now. So the man of the house, trying to test the monk's morality, he says, you know, what's the most important precept? And the monk says, they're all important. So somehow this man contrives to give him the... Um, put him in the situation where he either needs to drink a bottle of something or other or uh, kill and eat a chicken that he has or have sex with the man's wife. <laughs> so the monk, why he's in this position, I don't know. But anyway, he reflects, he reflects, well, you know, sex is all kind of complicated thing. I don't want to go there. I'm not taking life. I don't want to destroy the life of a chicken. If I drink the whiskey, at least it's only me that's harmed and nobody else so that seems to him the best thing so drinks the whiskey but what happens when you drink the whiskey <laughs> discernment goes so of course having drunk the whiskey the result of the thing is he ends up killing the chicken eating it and then having sex with the man's wife <laughs> so you know the range of views i would say is you know di di discernment you have to see for yourself the, the degree to which you know, a drink is is part actually of a kind of social bonding that can be perfectly you know, skillful, enjoyable, connective, or it can lead to the loss of discernment. Loss of discernment is never a good idea. Right. On that uh, Dharma Yatra we used to do, there was one guy who uh, was a recovering alcoholic, which I didn't know, we didn't know at the time. Anyway. One evening, and he was so happy to be on the retreat, feeling so good, and he'd been sober for I'm not sure how long a time, etc., etc. And then one in the middle of the, the yatra, he disappeared one evening, and he got very, 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 very drunk, and came back at like five o'clock in the morning, singing, ringing the bell to wake everybody up from meditation. I mean, all over the place. And then I spent time with him. And then, of course, the shame attack and the withdrawal and the loss of his sobriety and a lot of difficult. And in just sitting with him, the time he said, oh, he said, I, I was feeling so good. I was feeling so bright. I was feeling so present. I was feeling so conscious. He says, normally I'm afraid to have a drink. I'm afraid to have a drink. But I was feeling so good. I thought, let me have one conscious drink. One last conscious drink. I said, well, yeah, well, the, the, you did have one last conscious drink because well, the one is the conscious, and then by the second one, it's not conscious. It's less conscious and less conscious. Uh, gone. So I think the discernment, right, is the, is the core thing. What's the, what are you supporting? What are you supporting? Whatever you support, whatever you feed, that's what grows. So if one's feeding a sense of you know harmony with one's family, one's feeding a sense of some sort of social bonding, one's feeding uh, you know th there can be goodness in that, or one can be feeding unconsciousness, one can be feeding a kind of a loss of discernment, one can be feeding feeding unhelpful patterns, one can be feeding a kind of uh, 
a sort of self-destructive uh, relationship with oneself. Would you, there's a couple of linked ones, would you please tell us about a good accessible book where all these Pali concepts that we have been exploring can be studied, particularly the jhanas, but many other concepts you've talked about. The words get forgotten, but I'm increasingly interested. And somebody else says, could you tell us something about the psychic powers that are supposed to develop with meditation? No, I'd like to hear more as a way to demystify these the cities, these powers. Like with the jhanas, I found that help, the demystifying of the jhanas helpful. So the book resource, I have a, a good friend, uh, Shaila Catherine, who's uh, written a book called Focused and Fearless. And it's very much focused on jhana practice, and she's she's done a lot of uh, intensive jhana practice, particularly within that kind of very precise Burmese system. And um, so that I could certainly recommend, Focused and Fearless by Shaila Catherine, and also Lee Brassington, who was a student of Ayakema, and has been specifically teaching jhana practice for a long, long time. He has a book called. Right concentration, yeah. Um, and it's difficult to, aside from jhana stuff, it's difficult to know what book to just that. I don't really know of a book. Maybe somebody does that kind of references the Pali in the way that I've sort of similar way to the, that which I've been doing in the retreat. Huh? In the Buddha's words. Yeah, and maybe. Right. Uh huh. Okay. Uh, Andrew Lenski. Yeah, I know him, but I haven't read any of his books. You'll also probably find, you know, people. I a lot of the translations I use, I make up basically. They're not particularly, and I I often sometimes refer to what's the more usual translation, and then, but. Again, this isn't very orthodox, but I, for me, it's been very helpful to make up, not make up, to to find the translations that actually have a resonance of the experience for me, right? So when I, mindfulness, it's just not a good word for me, for sati, presence. It's like, oh, that's what sati means. Sati sampajanya, mindfulness and clear comprehension. Sati Sampajan, what's really so okay, Sati Sampajan, what's it mean to be here with experience? Oh, present. And Sampajanya? Sampajanya, I get the Pali etymology. Present and aware. Aware of what's happening. Oh, Sampajanya means awareness to me. So present and aware. That has a resonance for me in attending to experience in a way that mindful and clearly comprehending. It just doesn't isn't alive. So I think, aside from looking for the traditional references, I think I think it's important that we find ways of making sense of traditional words or you know old words, foreign words, etc., that are alive for us. Roland Barthes had a nice line where he says, "All really good books ought to be retranslated every twenty years." You know, language moves on and evolves, and I think it's up to the living generation of practitioners to to communicate. I mean, that's very much what the Buddha did. He communicated it in the idiom of his day, in the language of his day, in the examples of his day. The the general scholarly and religious language of the of Buddha's time was Sanskrit, but he didn't teach in Sanskrit. He taught in more of a, a much more casual. Pali is related to Sanskrit, but it's a much more casual verbal form. He spoke in very different ways, whether he was addressing you know, what kind of people, where they were in the social strata, how close they were to him. He used all kinds of different examples, a lot of kind of agrarian examples when he was you know, teaching agrarian farmers, and then uh, kind of uh, diplomatic examples when he was teaching uh, the kind of leaders and uh, uh, the sort of tribal kings and things of, of that area. So I think it's important that we make the language our own. 
Um, Accesstoinsight.org is a really good resource for a kind of massive array of of Buddhist writings that all relate to the Pali Canon. There's a lot of Pali references. There's a Pali English dictionary and glossary there. There's the translations of lots of books, mostly by Western uh, monastics, but not entirely, also by Eastern monastics and by Western lay teachers. It's very good. Oh, and I didn't say anything about the psychic powers. The the pouvoir psychique. So, um, you know, people tend to just like I was a little hesitant to speak about the jhanas, right? Because people get a little excited by things that seem um, like attainments. That's the problem. Is that oh, okay? First jhana, second jhana, third jhana, fourth jhana. We. Something that I can attain, something I can measure my progress on. We get very, and then oh, psychic powers. That sounds very juicy. Um, so what would I say? I would say a couple of things. If if some of those psychic powers uh, start to be a feature of one's practice, if they're not a feature of one's practice, there's no need to give them any attention at all. If they start to be a feature of one's practice, it's really worth uh, bringing that to somebody, you, uh, to a teacher to work with, somebody you like trust or ask them. And if they don't know the territory of that stuff themselves, to, to recommend you to somebody who does know that territory. And the reason is because they, it's seducti they're seductive and they're tricky, uh, mostly because they're seductive. The tendency to, to identify with, to get excited about, and to get caught up in the fact that one's mind has this kind of newfound capacity to, act, to operate in, in, in powerful ways. Like, um, like being able to displace one's consciousness from one's physical location and roam around. Like... Being able to um, to know what's happening for people in, in in a very direct way. The other thing I would say about the psychic powers is they're not generally as they sound. So, for example, mind reading. You see, oh, one's able to know another's mind. Generally, the idea we might have, oh, I should read another's mind, as if their thoughts are going to be appearing like on a screen running across their forehead, right? That's not what it's like to know another's mind. It's more like um, one somehow just sees what's happening for someone. One sees and knows in a way that's difficult to describe because it's psychic rather than sensory, but is abundantly clear in the moment, in the knowing of it, one sees what, how somebody is caught in something. Or one sees, it's more like one sees the mindset. One, 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 one understands, uh, one understands someone. In a way that you know is direct, penetrating, and has a certain responsibility with it, right? Because if one really sees one, one then has to be very discerning about what one says, about what one sees, how much to say about what one sees. Of course, it can be helpful. One sees into someone's mind in a way that better than the person can see it themselves. One can be of a great support to that person, but one can also be. Cause a lot of trouble for that person. You say more than they can understand. You, you, you be too directive or too imposing. It can be very messy. So, because of the responsibility that comes along with those things, importance of being skillful. And so, as I say, if it becomes a feature of your practice, and they tend to go along with the jhanas, not necessarily. They, sometimes the powers develop separate from the jhanas. Sometimes people develop the jhanas without the the, the various powers developing, but if and as they they develop in some way, it's it's helpful to have someone to kind of hold and guide you a little with that. 
Is it contrary to good practice to have an interest in how things work, including the scientific method? Safe water, sanitation, medicine, dentistry, etc. All things that seem to be good, good in the world. Yeah, no, I don't. I don't see it as it. Why? No, con not at all contrary to good practice. Dalai Lama was very famously fascinated by how things work. When he was growing up, he would take apart clocks, take apart uh, the, the one car that existed in Tibet. He took apart to find out how it worked. And then, of course, couldn't put it back together. <laughs> so I, when I was wondering about the question, again, the possible kind of misunderstanding because what we're training in a meditation retreat is kind of is non-conceptual awareness right we're training ourselves but we're not trying to put aside um uh, what's the word a discursive we're not trying to kind of do away with an, an intellectual capacity or a uh Forgotten the word. I would stick with that. We're not trying to do away. It's not a sort of anti-intellectualism. We're just we're, we're but we're trying to we're in a way realizing okay that's a fabulous thing and it's not the whole story of how mind can work. It's very good for uh, dentistry and <laughs> sanitation etc etc. But it's not so good for penetrating the deeper things of life. And the thing, most of us are a little over-activated, over-seduced by, by intellectual mode of using the mind to the point that we don't really know much other way of using mind. And there's a lot of other way of using mind. But they're not, they're not, uh, they're not contradictory or, or uh, opposed. Thank you. Yeah. I think there was another question that was... Similar. Yeah. I'd like to hear your views on the interactions between... It's not similar, but I'll read it out and then maybe answer both. Between compassion and the analyzing mind or intellectual activity. Often in my working environment, for example, in conversations and in myself even, I see the analyzing mind getting in the way of the natural and intuitive compassionate response. For example, towards refugees, animals, minorities, etc. The analyzing mind is then used as a way to make excuses, good reasons to not really look at the problem or really care or to feel the compassionate impulse that is surely there if one is able to listen deeply enough. Is there a skillful way of using the mind to support compassion? You know, some, sometimes we, we, I mean, we've looked at different, one way of describing, we could say we've been cultivating different forms of intelligence. When we use the word intelligence, mostly we refer just to cognitive intelligence. But, but that is just that. It's just cognitive intelligence. The, the, I would, there's all kinds of ways one could unpack this. And I, a lot of Ken Wilber's writings, if you're interested, are very helpful in the sense of levels, lines, states, and stages, looking at how development happens. But just... The three, we talked about embodiment a lot, right? Just letting it, it attention land here. And we increasingly then start to recognize that, you know, this is about a kind of a somatic intelligence, embodied intelligence, kinesthetic intelligence. If we're just busy with analyzing, thinking, you know, which a lot of us are overly caught up in, and you can see when someone's just so busy thinking about there's no access. We don't know. Most people, at least in, uh, in the cultural milieu that most of us have grown up in and find ourselves in, most people have no idea what somatic intelligence is, really. Sports people have some idea, right? But it's, that's a different form of somatic intelligence. 
But when you, you know, if you watch, I love tennis. You watch tennis. You watch tennis. He's suddenly trained those, that, that muscle memory, right? We call it conventionally, right? The capacity your body knows. I was talking to my son about the guitar uh, last night. We were talking about you know, the relationship between the mind and the fingers. And the way, you know, sometimes your mind knows what you want to play and your fingers, they, they just don't follow. They haven't trained yet. And then, but you keep, you keep following that thing and then your, your mind and your fingers come together. And then, oh, there's a kind of beauty in that. And mind and fingers in harmony. And then, he says, and then, he says, it gets really good when it's just your fingers. Right? You just, your mind doesn't need to know it. Your fingers know it. Very nice to hear. It's just fingers. Your fingers are knowing. That's a form of, of somatic intelligence, right? The fingers know. Body knows in a totally different way than intellect knows. And one of the things we're doing is we're cultivating the way in which body knows. Sometimes I call that cellular knowing. When your cells know not to cling then, you know, what we call uh, liberation. You think of liberation as some kind of mental event, but actually body knows a lot about liberation. Body knows about clinging and non-clinging. Body knows in a completely different way what it's like to be caught up, compelled, fixated, and what it's like to be open and free. It's part of why I speak with my hands quite a lot and use gestures because for me the, re the, the embodied relationship to experience is so foundational. So when I'm talking about clinging, I'm not really so worried about what the intellect's doing because mostly it's just it's telling us a story about something. I'm interested in what one's doing energetically. What's your belly doing? Right. What's your jaw doing? Oh... So that kind of embodied intelligence, belly center, is the f most foundational intelligence. Right? And then heart, emotional intelligence. Right? Heart knows in its own way as well. The heart knows something about receiving experience, responding to experience, caring for experience. It's a different mode of knowing. And then mind knows something about experience. And they're different, and they're complementary, and they work best when they're built in that order. When somatic intelligence is foundational, one's landed in it, grounded in it, at home in it, here, one's here, in embodied life. And, and grounded here, there's room for the heart to function, to care, to feel, to know, to respond. And with that emotional intelligence, mind can work very, very well, including in dentistry, you know, including in analysis, including in reflection, including on thinking about problems, thinking what's important here, what should I do here? Right? Very, very fantastic capacity to reflect, to think, to abstract an experience in order to really consider it. But if the abstraction is cut off from heart and body, it still might be good for dentistry, or it still might be good for sanitation, or it still might be good for all kinds of analysis, but it won't be so good for living well. All kinds of particular fields, can, the mind can run them. But living well, you need those three things to work in harmony. Plenty of examples, right, where people's cognitive development or their cognitive intelligence r is running way ahead of their heart's development or their emotional intelligence. And one of the ways you can tell that people whose cognitive intelligence is way uh, out ahead of their emotional intelligence, for example, tend to be intolerant right, because they just they haven't developed the heart, and it's painful to have a shut-down heart. You tend to be, you know, that's what tyrants are. Right? You've got to have quite a lot of cognitive intelligence to be a tyrant. Right? You've got to run things, you've got to order people about, you've got to, you know, but, you know, 
There's no, no capacity for empathy, like we spoke about before. You know, this, you know, Hitler used to be the reference point for all these things, but we don't need to look far or so far back. You know, the world is lurching towards the, the not even is lurching alarmingly in that direction. You know, Trump's a totally uh, example, a total example. Got, he must be smart somehow. Right? Right? There's a lot of a lot of cogs to turn, but clearly, absolutely no in emotional intelligence, no capacity to 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 feel, empathise, etc. Contrast with Obama previously, actually pretty embodied as well. You can agree or disagree with policy decisions, but pretty embodied, very emotionally intelligent. Just in a way of connecting with people and speaking with people, a certain sense of warmth, and kind of, and then you know, smart as well. So I know that's a long answer to a lot of different things, but more than addressing the specifics, I think that sense it helps to understand something about a kind of real intelligent functioning, to have a fuller sense of intelligence than just cognitive intelligence. Right? Fully functioning intelligence is embodied intelligence, emotional intelligence, and cognitive intelligence. And as I say, if you want to kind of re understand more, which I imagine from the first question at least, you know, there's a love of that understanding models. Ken Wilbo is, writes really, really well about that stuff. Okay, maybe just one. Actually, I think we should stop here. If I didn't get to your question, please feel free to ask me about it in person at the end of the retreat. So, let's Noticing as I sit here, it's like, oh, that's a lot of words. But it's, uh, it's also, you know, where we are in the retreat, starting to turn our attention to kind of the wider field of life and some of the, these wider fields of consideration, etc. And uh, that's you know, how we're turning our attention over the next day or two towards you know, the more sense of wider field of life, relational life. different factors that make up what we call uh, my life, our life. So, if it seems to you also like a lot of words, yeah, let, let the ones that seem useful um, you know, be digested. Let the ones that don't seem useful or that one doesn't agree with or that seem just plain ridiculous, let them go by. And as I'll be emphasizing in the next couple of days, just seeing, you know, as, the as we start to feel and sense and turn attention towards this wider sphere of life, seeing how that's in no way an impediment to this, our core orientation, which is being here in the midst of. Seeing how I can be simple with, gentle in relation to, and exploratory of my experience moment by moment. So, I'll leave you with that. <laughs>